Thriving in today's fast-paced world of change and disruption requires innovation. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that explores the ins and outs of innovation with raw stories, real insights, and practical advice from the best and brightest in the world of startups and innovation. Each week, we'll bring you the latest ideas in lean startup, design thinking, corporate venture capital, and more. Now, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. This week, we decided to go back into our archives. Uh, Last year, we ran a podcast called Inside Outside that uh, looked primarily at startups outside the valley. And one of the guests we had a chance to talk to is one of my favorite people in the world, Diana Kander. Diana is the author of All In Startup. and She has a great insight into not only startup innovation, but uh, corporate innovation as well. Uh, We decided to bring this episode back, so hope you enjoy it. All right, so you've got a lot on your plate. You're an entrepreneur, author, Kauffman Fellow, teacher. What gets you excited about building startups and helping entrepreneurs? Gosh, it's such a hard uh, question to answer, but it is true. I wake up every morning thinking about how to help people uh, be more innovative in their life. And I think the thing that uh, drives me the most is that there's a big confusion out there about what the definition of innovation means. So to me, innovation is creating something new that adds value to people. And so often people just stop at the new part. They think that if they just make something that's never existed before, they're done. And I'm just very passionate about spreading the message that creating value is really the important part and how to help people figure out how to do it. So through your work with Kaufman and your book, All in Startup, you've had a chance to kind of travel and see startups being built everywhere. And and part of our podcast is, is talking about startups outside the valley and that. What are some of the core challenges and opportunities that you see for a startup trying to build outside the outside the ecosystem of the of Silicon Valley? I think that so many people outside of Silicon Valley think that they're going to create recreate Silicon Valley like startups. So they're going to build the next Facebook or Instagram. And oftentimes, if they are building a company like that, the amount of money that they're going to need will only be available in the Valley. So they end up moving. But if they don't have to try to start those companies only. There's so many advantages and so many great opportunities that exist outside the Valley in industries that maybe aren't sexy. And so I think Lincoln has done such an incredible job of finding those niches where they can become experts, um, such as sports or the finance industry, where you know they're seen as a hub for those types of companies and they can really dominate and they don't have as much of a fear of having their businesses sucked out to the valley once they start finding success. Right. So what are some of the most common mistakes you see entrepreneurs make? Obviously, you know, you, you see a lot of this early stage stuff and your book is all about the early stage stuff. What are some of the most common mistakes that you're seeing? So the n- number one mistake is that people focus on the product and the thing that they're building versus focusing on the customer and the problem that they're solving. So a lot of People think, of course, everybody's going to want this. As soon as I show it to one person, they're going to tell everyone they know about it. It's going to grow virally. And unfortunately, that rarely happens. And, And that's because people aren't thinking about the customer and their pain point. And I understand why. It's really easy to fall in love with your 
product or your idea. And it's really scary to go out and potentially be rejected by customers. So oftentimes people start out by dreaming up an idea and then going to work on building it, you know, in their basement without telling anybody because they don't want somebody to steal the idea. And they spend lots of money and lots of time until they think it's perfect. And then they go out to customers and oftentimes they find, you know, no love (laughs) from the customer. So they they can't sell their product and they go through the cycle over and over again because then they go back to the basement and say, you know, how should it be different? And so they brainstorm new ideas and they keep working on it, go back to customers, nothing. So then they do it again. And usually this cycle ends only when they run out of money. Um, (laughs) So the opposite way to start a company is to get an idea and say, okay, how can I not waste my time or money building something that nobody's ever going to want to buy? So what's a small bet I can make today to see if people are actually interested in it? Can I pre-sell this product? Um, Can I uh, start getting people to sign up for? Can I get it with me? And rarely do entrepreneurs take that kind of path forward, but it's such an easy way to get started, to make sure that your company is going to generate revenue when you finally decide to launch. Excellent. Um, so what are some of the things that uh, entrepreneurs can do to better embrace that philosophy? Because it is so difficult. So the best thing that you can do is to have objective people around you who help you stay honest. Even I fall in love with ideas that I have and I say, I don't have to really test. I mean, clearly this is such a great idea that it's going to work. And I I know enough to have people in my life who are like, come on, just follow your own (laughs) logic, you know, just do the test. Even if you're so sure it's going to be successful, this will give you um, better evidence of exactly which features you should benefit, which customer groups are interested in it. So it's having people honest in your life that believe in the lean process or methodology, believe in making small bets who force you to interact with customers before you start branding it or building your product. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, The All-In Startup. You know, it was a, it's an innovative approach to teaching folks about lean startup and customer validation. What made you decide to write kind of a fiction book instead of the traditional textbook? You know, I usually had trouble finishing business books. I would read the first third, and then I would feel like I got the gist of what the book was trying to communicate. And I hadn't read any fiction since I was in high school, and I was having trouble going to sleep at night because I was reading these business books and then waking up at two o'clock in the morning with all these ideas. So my husband said I could only read fiction before I went to bed. So I read my first fiction book and I just fell in love with it. Like I couldn't put it down when I wasn't reading it. I was thinking about the characters and worrying about them. And I was telling my husband that this was the greatest book ever written. And he was like, no, this is every single fiction book. And I was like, wow, like what if, somebody wrote a business book that people couldn't wait to finish. Like they just couldn't get enough of it. And they fell in love with the characters and then the business principles, um, you know, which can be usually summarized. That's why they have business book summaries because there's usually like three or four pages of actual content in the book. What if you spread that across a really interesting story? And that was the medicine that you use the sugar of the story to, to help people digest. So that was the theory behind it. 
So you also used a kind of a innovative way to kind of promote the book. So you, I think you used the Indiegogo campaign to kind of kickstart the book. Can you talk through kind of what you learned from that process and what you'd recommend? For sure. So my objective, my customer from the very beginning was people who teach entrepreneurship. Like it's hard to teach principles unless you have a business that you're working in so that you can understand them. And they were having trouble getting students to engage and to actually read the things that they were assigning. So my customers were, um, like I said, entrepreneurship educators. So I uh, you know, wanted to use the book as a way to change how a lot of them were teaching entrepreneurship. So I created um, an Indiegogo campaign to help me do that and to have individual entrepreneurs who are just as passionate about this way of teaching entrepreneurship um, sponsor different schools to make sure that I could get the book and the curriculum that I created alongside of it to those individual professors. So uh, that was, you know, one of the small tests that I um, tried to run was to see if, you know, I could get community support around this and to get entrepreneurship educators interested in the concept uh, before the book was ever published. And what, any, what, what did you learn from that process as far as tips and tricks for running a crowdfunding you know, my number one takeaway was that you should start planning for the campaign long before the campaign ever starts. I'm sure you've heard this from everybody else who's run the campaign. But if you could start contacting people um, long before the campaign actually launches, like you, you shouldn't wonder, just like your startup, you shouldn't hope that it's successful on day one. You should have done so much work beforehand that you know exactly who's going to come and buy on day one. Um, and I could have done a significantly better job of that. Excellent. Um, tell me about the, you use something in your class called the $1 exercise. Can you go through that? Sure. Uh, there's so many times where we as entrepreneurs think that there are no brainers in the world. Like clearly I have a brilliant idea and it's going to you know, catch on quick. And I try to use different exercises in the classroom to demonstrate to people just the blind spots they can develop. So the $1 challenge is, is that kind of thing where I have, I give students um, the instructions to go to a public place and hand out five $1 bills. And before they do, they have to write a short business plan. I mean, it's a couple sentences. So they have to say, you know, who they think their target customers are going to be, which is usually everybody, um, what their marketing plan is, like what is it that they're going to go out and say to people and then their finances their financial plan is okay out of the five one dollar bills how many will you be able to give away and people are often surprised by the challenge when they first hear it they're like i'm giving away free money of course everybody's going to want to take my free money and uh, almost never uh, are people able to give away all five one dollar bills they fail pretty much 99% of the time. And I've now had other professors in other schools, uh, you know, following the curriculum that I send out, also do the challenge and they have the same uh, results. So the students quickly learn that their initial plan goes out the window almost upon immediate contact with customers. So they quickly change their messaging and what it is um, that they're going to say to them. And they learn that there are certain groups of people that are more receptive than others. So in some areas, um, older people are less receptive than younger, like younger people don't know enough to be uh, cautious, you know, or weary of people trying to give them something. But older people are like, oh, this is, 
there's some kind of scam. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. So uh, sometimes they learn that groups of people are more receptive to something than approaching somebody one-on-one. -on -one. So these are things that you never would have been able to uh, guess when you were just brainstorming the activity. So, so they learn that their initial plan goes out the window almost immediately, that you discover valuable insights by interacting with customers never would have thought of on their own. And most importantly, they discover that not everybody wants free money. And that's such an important lesson because whatever business idea they come up with is not going to be as good as free money. Like there's pretty much no better product <laughs> out there than giving people cash and asking for nothing in return. So they quickly understand that not everybody's going to want to buy whatever it is they come up with. So they better do a good job of figuring out who their customers are going to be and why they would want their product. That's awesome. So you're obviously not only just a teacher, you, you've been an entrepreneur. Uh, what, tell me about a story about the earliest experience that you had about being an entrepreneur or start, starting that first thing. Was it a lemonade stand? Was it something? Tell us some stories about that. You want to go that far back? Uh, well, I uh, grew up very, very poor and, uh, you know, quickly learned if I wanted things, I had to earn money. So pretty much everything is a revenue generating opportunity. So when I was, um, I, I don't remember, like nine or 10 years old, I got a magic kit for my birthday. And I was like, okay, now I'm, I don't know anything about magic, but I have this kit and I'm going to put on magic shows and charge money for attendance. Um, so it just started at that age and continue to progress uh, between jobs and different things that I would sell um, on the side. Like um, I found a local flea market in Kansas city where I found all kinds of goods that people in my, um, in my, where I went to high school didn't go out to that part of town, but they really liked some of the things that I found. So I would resell the flea market goods that I was able to find. Um, so that was a lot of high school. <laughs> um, I was involved in like door-to-door -door sales um, activities. I mean, pretty much anything I tried from a very, very early age. Very cool. So, and tell me, maybe what's the most uplifting experience with helping an entrepreneur get to the next level that you've had? There's <sighs> so many stories, so it's, it's hard to choose um, between them. So I see my role, like one of my best roles is that of a uh, provocateur. So the difference to me between being a mentor and a provocateur is that a mentor exists to answer the entrepreneur's question. So the entrepreneur says, you know, I need, um, I, I need to learn how to hire people. And then the mentor is like, well, when I hire, here's the procedure I follow. And a provocateur is a person who comes up with the questions that the entrepreneur would never even think of. So they push the entrepreneur to different realms. And in my case, it was one thought-provoking question. Um, so I try to play that role for other people. And just this year, I was working with a student entrepreneur at Mizzou. And when I first met him, he had a uh, business that installed uh, guttering around houses. And he, he was making okay enough money to pay the rent and, and then some. And, you know, through a series of our conversations, he started thinking bigger 
And at the beginning of the year, he sent me an email that said, you know, based on our conversations, I, I'm like jazzed up and I think I'm going to earn $100,000 this year. And I, I remember reading that and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I just read an article um, covering the student's business about how he's on pace to hit $100,000 in revenue this year. So uh, that's really exciting when people push themselves to things that they never even thought was possible and are able to achieve it. That's awesome. So last question is what's next on your plate? So I'm really focused on helping entrepreneurship educators teach entrepreneurship in a really engaging way. So the book is one part, but I'm trying to come up with as many exercises to supplement the curriculum as I can, um, as many different tools to put into their toolbox. And one of the things I'm really excited about, I mean, it's, it's really early to, to talk about it now, but um, I have uh, an idea for a replacement for the business plan. So it's a two-page validated business plan. Rather than 30 pages, you have two pages that communicate everything you would have learned in the 30 pages, plus a very simple form that they fill out that produces all of their uh, financial documents. So it's something that's meant to take the business plan writing process from three weeks to potentially, I don't know, three to five hours. So I'm very excited about that because it will keep the students from having to spend all that time writing their plan and it'll keep the professors from having to read all those plans. But <laughs> in the end, the concepts, the, you know, the, the thinking about the business will not have changed. You have to go through the same level of analysis and evaluation and validation than you would have otherwise. I'm just cutting out all the extra noise. Fantastic. And where can uh, our audience uh, find out more about you or follow you or, or, or reach you? dianacander.com. That's Diana, D-I-A-N-A, Kander, K-A-N-D-E-R. And they can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Um, pretty much a simple Google will, will find all of those <laughs> avenues. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, yeah, this was perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Well, that's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Special thanks to our guests for being on the show this week. Also, we'd love to hear from you, so please do reach out and uh, talk to us on Twitter at the IO Podcast. Uh, visit us online at, at uh, insideoutside.io. And uh, if you have 30 seconds, go over to iTunes, um, leave a review, and you can subscribe there as well. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, go out and innovate. <laughs>